So if you're like me, um, there's people in your life that are easier to love than others. And there's some people that it just kind of feels natural to love them. It's just, you don't even have to think about it. It's just easy. It just flows out of you. You are drawn to them. You, you love them. You enjoy them. And it's just not really difficult. It comes naturally. No effort. Uh, but there's others in your life, if you're like me, that are more challenging to love. Uh, it kind of takes effort. And maybe you even feel it's impossible. I don't even feel like I could ever love this person. Uh, maybe I could you know, work myself up to like be kind of nice to them on the outside, but in terms of like being drawn towards them and really loving them, like I just, you know, you feel like that's beyond you. And it's this uphill battle that you have to work hard at. And there's maybe even some people that you just avoid because you don't even want to try. That it's like, I, these people are easy to love, these people are hard to love, but I do it anyway, and this person I just don't even want to do it. It's just too hard. And we have our reasons of why it's hard for, to love those people or why we might avoid them. Uh, they've hurt us or we think they don't deserve it. Um, I've done so much for them already and they just un- continue to be ungrateful or it doesn't help. They don't, and they're still, you know, feeling like I haven't done anything for them. And we might think, I have enough problems on my own. I don't need to deal with their problems. Like, I just, that's just not something I need in my life. I'm going to go be around people that uh, bring me joy and, and that I feel uh, comfortable around. And, and that I love them, they love me. And this isn't, I mean, this is like the, uh, the core thing about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is becoming people who love even the hardest people, even our enemies. And as we go into this, this series again, starting it back up in Luke, the title for it is to seek and to save, because in Luke's gospel, Jesus answered, uh, why has he come? Why has, why has he come from heaven uh, and been born as a man and then grew up and did this ministry that he did and around you know Galilee and Jerusalem and the land of Israel and then died? Why did he come to do that? He says uh, in Luke 19.10, I've come to seek and to save the lost. And we're in this part of the Gospel according to Luke where he's doing this journey from uh, the region of Galilee and going up to Jerusalem for Passover. And as we go through chapters 9 through 19, he's going to have conversations with lots of people about what is God's kingdom like? Uh, and in order to know what God's kingdom is like, you have to know what God is like. Um, and, and you also have to know what Jesus is like. Jesus is the one God's setting up as this king. And so what is this king like and what kind of kingdom is he bringing about? And he's telling, he talks... In Luke 9 through 19, there's lots of parables where, or teachings and sayings where Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom is like, this is what it looks like. And there's also people challenging him saying, you know, we don't get what you're doing. Or, and he'll correct them using parables as well and pictures of the kingdom. And the three passages we're doing next, Luke 10, 25 to 37, which is famously called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then the next one where there's Mary and Martha and Jesus, uh, Martha, Mary's sister, is really busy serving and doing all this stuff. And she says, Jesus, uh, tell my sister to help me out. She's just sitting at your feet learning from you. That's the second story in this set. And then the third one is where Jesus' disciples say, uh, Lord, teach us to pray. And really all three of these passages, uh, the first one we're doing today is about loving other people. And then the one where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray is about loving God. And right in the middle, we have Jesus with this woman sitting at his feet learning from him. And these all really go together because it's like, who's going to teach us how to love other people? Who's going to teach us how to love God? Well, it's Jesus in that middle story, sitting at his feet, learning from him. And so the, you know, this, uh, the disciples say in that third story, Lord, 
teach us to pray. Um, but these kind of go together, so I titled this sermon, Lord, Teach Us to Love, that Jesus is trying to teach uh, this man he's interacting with in this story uh, how to love. And what I want you to do as we go through this message, and just think right now, who is someone who's hard for you to love? Who's someone in your life that's difficult to love? And I'd encourage you even to write it down, unless it's the person next to you. Uh, then they'll, might they read it, like, hey, Bob might be like, why'd you write my name down? That's a different Bob. Uh, it's not you, Bob. But, you know, maybe even write it down, and as we're going on your bulletin, if you like taking notes, and just put it at the top here, this is the person, or write their initials or something, this is the person in my life who's difficult to love. And as we go through this message, and if you're a note taker or whatever, keep looking up at that name and being like, this is the person that I need to apply this to. So who's someone in your life that's difficult to love? Someone who's hard to love. This passage breaks down into two parts. Um, first, and both of them have a question that is asked by a man who's called a lawyer. Uh, in verse uh, 25, um, this lawyer comes, says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. You know, so just one occasion, at some point, Jesus with a crowd of people maybe teaching and, or just hanging out, and all of a sudden a lawyer gets up and says, Hey, I want to put you to the Well, he doesn't say I want to put you to the test. But he stands up to put Jesus to the test. And this isn't a, a courtroom lawyer. Uh, this is someone, I mean, a lawyer is an expert in the law. And in this case, this person is an expert in the Old Testament law, um, God, what God taught in uh, especially the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So this guy's an expert in the Old Testament law. He's not a courtroom lawyer. And this shows us that there's these different types of people hanging around Jesus. There's some people who, uh, he said, come follow me. And they followed him. And he can even, in the passage we saw last week, he can even send them out on assignments to do. So he says these close people that are around him. Then he probably has people around him that have been healed by him and benefited from his ministry. Or maybe he's in town and people heard that he can heal people. So they're checking him out. They maybe want to get his help, but maybe aren't fully committed disciples. And then you even see there's people like this lawyer who aren't sure about him, don't like him, who are standing at the test of him. There's this group of people around Jesus. Um, really, I think that's what we should be as a community, a community of people that are in all kinds of different places. Some people committed disciples, some people trying to figure it out, some people who might not even like Jesus, but they're around anyway. And you see this group of people around Jesus. And he asks this question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life is uh, synonymous with uh, the kingdom of God, or life with God, or salvation or resurrection at the end of the age. Many Jews believe like when God's kingdom God's kingdom is going to come, it's going to be heaven on earth, and those who are, are righteous are going to be resurrected uh, to live with God forever. And so he's asking, God, Teacher, what do I need to do to have eternal life, to be part of God's kingdom, to have life with God forever, to be, to be saved, to, have resurrect, to be resurrected at the end of the age? And he's asking, well, how do I do that? And really, we... He's getting to, okay, who, who are the people that will get eternal life? He's asking him, uh, how do I get eternal life? And we might ask, well, who are the people that inherit eternal life according to the Bible? And especially the Old Testament and uh, says that the righteous will inherit eternal life. And that's what this teacher, would, or, sorry, the lawyer would believe, that the righteous are going to inherit eternal life. What do I need to, do? and he's asking, what do I need to do to be one of the righteous who are going to inherit eternal life in God's kingdom? And his motive was to, to test Jesus. His question isn't really a personal one. He's not coming with this soul that's in turmoil and saying, 
Jesus, I'm really worried about you know the state of my, my being. Uh, how can I inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? Please tell me. He's coming with a more academic question, less personal. And he's saying, I want to test you. And so uh, Jesus is this teacher with a big following. And now he's heading up to Jerusalem. And this expert in the law wants to find out, is this guy orthodox? Is he going to have the right answer? Like, how do you inherit eternal life? And he's this guy, is this guy a problem or not? So he's coming to Jesus and being like, I want to test him and see, does he have the right answer? And Jesus' response is classic Jesus. He usually doesn't tell people what they're wanting to hear. He usually gives them a question so that they have to stir and think about it. And to even disarm, he can has a sense like, this guy's testing me, and it's really a trap. And so I'm going to you know, kind of engage him in a different way. And so he, said, he asked them, uh, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And so he asked him, you know, what, what does the Bible say? And what do you think it means? And uh, Jesus just goes back to what God says. Instead of resting on his authority, he goes back to God, what God's word said, what was God already said. And the lawyer's answer in verse 27 is, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. It's basically love God, and love others. And these commands come, the love God command comes from Deuteronomy 6.5, uh, where Jewish people would recite that several times a day. It's the, called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God, and so on. And then Leviticus 19.18 is where we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. And they, Jesus said in Matthew 22.34-40, he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, well, the, the first greatest commandment is love God. He says this, uh, and the second is to love your neighbor. It says it's like it. They're connected. If you're loving God, you are going to love your neighbor because the way we love God is by obeying him. And God says, love your neighbor, love people in your life. And he says all the law and the prophets, like everything in the Old Testament, depends on these two commands, loving God and loving others. They're, all the other commands are based on them or they flow out of them. Whenever the prophets are confronting Israel... They're confronting them for their lack of love for God and their lack of love for other people. And Jesus agrees with his answer. He says, do this and you will live. He says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In other words, do this, love God and love others, and you will inherit eternal life. You'll be part of God's kingdom. You will be saved. If you want to be one of the righteous who inherits eternal life, you must love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the lawyer isn't done, and now it gets a little more personal. First, it started academic, like, let's see if you have the right answer. But now, in verse 29, it says, we go into our second question. The first is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The second is in verse 29. Uh, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus said, you need to love your neighbors yourself. If you want to be one of the righteous who inherits the kingdom... And he says, well, okay, well, who is my neighbor? Like, who counts as my neighbor? And he wants, his motive is to justify himself. The first question, his motive was to test Jesus. The second question, his motive is to justify himself. And to justify someone means to declare them righteous, to say, you have you know, lived rightly, you've done right by the law. And those who are justified by God, who are declared righteous by God, uh, will inherit eternal life. But the Lord, he wants to justify himself. He wants to declare himself righteous. And I mean, why does he want to do this? Why, why does he feel this need to justify himself? And his question tells us everything. He said, and who is my neighbor? Both Jesus and the lawyer agree, you need to love God 
and love your neighbor if you want to be one of the righteous who's going to inherit eternal life. And the Lord, But the lawyer already knows, I don't actually love everyone as I love myself. Uh, he wants to justify that behavior. He, I, so, so to love my neighbor as myself, I'm not loving everyone, and I want to justify that behavior. I want to justify me not loving everyone as myself. And so he wants to ask, uh, get a definition. Well, who counts as my neighbor? Romans, surely those aren't my neighbors. This is the, that's the, this is the empire that came in and took our land. Those aren't my neighbor. I'm not going to love them. Uh, foreigners, people that don't even belong to Israel? No, they're you're just freeloaders here in my land. And uh, he says, those aren't my neighbor either. And only, he wants to define it as only Israelites are your neighbors. If you, and if you, they don't count as neighbors, then he's justified in not loving them. This person is my neighbor. I don't have to, isn't my neighbor. I don't have to love them. This person isn't my neighbor. I don't have to love them. Not this isn't you know neighbor like person living right next to you, but this is just people that are out and about in your life. And so he wants to limit his love. He wants to limit his love to a certain definition of neighbor. Romans, I don't have to love them. Not it's limited in that way. And Jesus doesn't answer his question, but instead tells a story. And so uh, the famous story of the Good Samaritan, uh, we we read, he says, uh, uh, Jesus replied, isn't that interesting? Who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, there's a man going down. (laughs) He's like, what? No, what are you doing? You're telling me a story. Just tell me the answer. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was like 17 miles. It was a steep decline because you're kind of going up, uh, steady decline as you're going to Jerusalem. And the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was uh, rocky, had places that robbers could hide. It was known as a dangerous way. And so this guy, uh, he gets attacked by these robbers who, I mean, it's not just that they like say, give me your wallet, and he gives them their wallet, but no, they beat him, and they strip him. So he's laying there naked, uh, and then they leave him half dead. And in verse 31, somebody comes by. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest, holy man, knows the law. He knows the command, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And he's probably returning home from a service at the temple. The priest had like a rotation. Like you had certain, I don't know exactly how long it was, maybe a month where it's like your month at the temple, away from your family, you serve, and then you go back. Uh, to your family. So he's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, going to be with his family again, but he sees him and he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And a Levite was kind of like an assistant to the priest, so he's maybe in a similar situation, returning from his service at the temple. He also knows the law, but he sees him and passed by on the other side. And both of these men could justify not loving this guy on the side of the road with good, reasonable excuses. Uh, we're, we're, we're returning home from our duties in Jerusalem. I haven't seen my family in a month. I want to get back to them. I miss them. Or they might say that stopping would put me in danger too of getting robbed. This guy got robbed. That means robbers are around here. This is kind of one of their places they you know, uh, jack people. So if I stop, I'm putting myself in danger. Or they might become unclean. This guy, is he dead? If I touch him... I'm going to become unclean. I'm going to have to go through this whole process of getting clean again uh, in terms of the Old Testament law. They might think, I don't have the resources to help them. I don't know what to do for this guy. I don't have the money to do this. How am I, I, don't, you know, I can't do this. Uh, and they might think, I have enough problems of my own. So they had reasonable excuses they could offer for not helping this guy. Verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, when he saw him, had compassion. 
What you would maybe expect at this point in a story like this, you know how there's like jokes, like three guys walked into a bar, one duck, or whatever, I don't know, that wasn't actually how the joke goes. But you know, there's like three guys sitting in a bar, they're talking and they unwind some girl sort of joke, but this is like a priest, a Levite, and you would expect a common Israelite, a common Jew to come walking. But Jesus kind of switches it and does a Samaritan uh, comes walking by. And the Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. Uh, they ethnically were uh, part Jewish, but they had some other uh, nationalities, ethnicities mixed in. And religiously, they used a version of the first five books of the Bible, so not quite the same as the Jewish people. And they didn't worship in Jerusalem. And they, so they did not get along. They're like these two religions. You know, It's almost like uh, the closer you are to someone, the more you fight. And they're like kind of close to each other, but because they aren't quite you know, exactly you know, uh, the same, they, they hated each other. They fought. But what the Samaritan does, we hear that he saw him, had compassion on him, went to him, didn't avoid him, didn't pass by on the other side. Uh, he bound his wounds, perhaps even by ripping strips from his own garments so he could bind his wounds. And then he pours on oil and wine. Oil would soothe the, the wound, wine would disinfect it. Uh, then he sets him on his own animal, you know, his donkey or horse or whatever he's got. He brings him to an inn, rents a room, and then he actually stays the night with him. It says that he himself took care of him that night personally, uh, tending his wounds, changing his bandages, getting him food and water, talking to him if he's conscious. And then he said, in verse 35, we're told, he gives the next day comes, he takes care of this guy all night, and then he tells the innkeeper here, uh, here's two denarii, uh, the going rate at the time. Uh, two denarii was like, uh, one denarii was like a day's wage, so two is two days' wages. And it was about one-twelfth of a denarii uh, to stay a night in an inn. So he gives him two, so he gives him 24 nights worth to spend here. And he says, whatever else, uh, is, you know, other charges that come up, you know, put it on my tab, you know, charge it to my account. And so this guy, he moves toward this person in need. The other guys walked in their side. And he moves towards this person in need. And so Jesus tells the story and he asks, verse 36, which one proved to be a neighbor? Which of these three proved to be a neighbor? And so he changes the question from who is my neighbor to how do you be a neighbor to other people? He doesn't ask, you know, was this guy a neighbor to any of them? He says, no, who acted as a neighbor? Who showed themselves to be a neighbor? And the lawyer answers, the one who showed him mercy. He avoids saying the Samaritan because most likely a Jewish lawyer doesn't want to say this people that he doesn't like. So it's the one who moved toward the need instead of away. And Jesus says to him then, uh, in the last, very last uh, sentence, verse 37, you go and do likewise. So he gives him this story, this very you know visceral image of what it looks like to be a neighbor. And he says, you go and do likewise. And so for us, consider that person in your life that is hard to love. Who's that person in your life that's hard to love, that's difficult to love? Uh, you, they come, if I was to tell you, uh, hey, I want you to go give you know, blank a hug, you would just be like, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. It's like the last thing I want to do. Like, Who's that person that you, is hard for you to love? And the question this passage gives us is, what does it look like to love them as yourself? Because this guy, he takes issue with loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus gives them this picture of what that would look like. And what the Samaritan shows us what it looks like to love someone as ourself is that their problems are your problems. This guy is beaten, naked, robbed, half dead. 
And the Samaritan, instead of saying, not my problem, he makes this guy's problem his problem. And his resources become his resources. Is that he takes on what this guy needs. He takes on his needs and makes them his own. Treats his needs as his own needs. And love, you could think of, is using your resources for another's good. That we treat our resources as if they belong to them. They don't belong to me. They belong to this person in need. They're not just for my needs, but they're for this person's need as well. And we see in this story the opposite of love is moving away from another person who is in need. That the, the first two people, uh, two, first two men avoided him. They had maybe had their reasons of why they could, how it could be justified, but they avoided him and withheld their resources from him, their time, their money, their energy, their, their skills. And so that person in your life who's hard to love, are you moving toward or away from them? And I would imagine if you're like me, that when somebody is hard for you to love, they've hurt you, annoyed you, uh, let you down, been ungrateful, it's almost like, you know, when magnets are kind of turned the wrong way, it's almost like, it's just like, I just want to get away from them. You're like repelled by them. Uh, but this guy, he moves towards them. This is a Samaritan moving towards a Jew. In any other kind of situation, this Jewish guy might have even been calling him names, disrespecting him, mistreating him, because they didn't like each other if this guy wasn't half-dead unconscious. In another situation, they might have not gotten along, but in this situation, he moves, sees someone in need and moves towards it and doesn't withhold. And so this person is hard for you to love. What, what's your reason? And your reason is the very thing that makes them hard to love. They've hurt me. They've let me down. I've given so much and it doesn't seem to do anything. And so that's our justification. That, the thing that makes them hard to love is the reason we don't want to love them. And that's our justification. You know, we might say, well, I have a good, valid reason not to love them. Therefore, I'm righteous. I'm, you know, in not loving them, I have a righteous reason. That's your justification. And we feel the need to justify ourselves when we see a gap between what we're doing and what we've been told we're supposed to do. And so this man, uh, the lawyer, sees a gap between what he's doing and what he's supposed to do. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. I'm not loving everyone as myself, and I want to justify that gap between the command and what I'm doing. I see a gap, and I want to justify why it's there. There's a good, valid reason that gap is there, why I'm not doing the thing that I've been commanded to do and know I'm supposed to do. And justifying is showing that there's a good, valid reason that the gap is there, a gap between what I am doing and what I'm supposed to be doing. And it, this is a, the childhood example we can think of is, why'd you hit her? Well, she hit me first. <laughs> you know you're not supposed to hit. Uh, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, and this is what you did. You hit her. You're not supposed to hit her. Why is there a scap? Well, she hit me first. And so I have a good reason that why I did not hit her. That she hit me first. And so I responded. And like the lawyer, we tend to put a limit on our love. That we only want to love certain people. And the command isn't love unless they give you a good, valid reason not to. You know, love everyone as yourself unless they give you a good reason not to love them. Then you don't have to love them. It's just straight up, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' point is not about who counts as a neighbor, but how do we be a neighbor that is loving to other people. And really the main point here that, uh, if you want to sum this up, is Jesus saying love has no limits. Uh, you're loving God, you're loving your neighbor. He says, you love God with everything, all your heart, soul, strength, uh, everything you have, that you're loving God. There's no limit on how much love you're showing to him. But also, you're loving your neighbor as yourself. So would you want to limit your love to yourself? No, there's, love has 
no limits. Your love is not limited to the people who are easy to love, who are deserving, who can repay you with gratitude or respect or whatever, to people who haven't hurt you. And Jesus is taking us beyond transactional relationships where we think, I'm going to love them if they deserve it, or if, it's, if they're not hard, or not, if they've been grateful or respectful. Like, I'm going to love them uh, if there's something, maybe you don't think it's in it for you, but it's like, no, you'll, you'll get it if you deserve it. And it's a transactional relationship. So what, that's tough though, if we think about that. If you think about that person in your life who's hard to love, it's tough to think about loving them, because it's hard. That's why it's hard, because they're hard to love. They're hard for you to love. Maybe it's something something about them just kind of you know triggers you or upsets you. There's something, other people seem to get along with them, but you don't. Or maybe it's like no one gets along with them. Nobody likes them. And there's reasons that people are hard for us to love, whether those reasons uh, are should keep us from loving them or not. But So what would grow this kind of love in us, this love that has no limits, that we would love people without putting any limits on who it is? Well, the command to love God and to love neighbor was given to the people of Israel, to a people who had already been loved by God, that he did for them what we see the Samaritan do in the story, that he... Saw, he saw them. He, he had compassion on them. He saw them uh, enslaved by the nation of by Egypt, and he had compassion. And he went into the situation. He moved towards them, and he takes them out. They're in slavery, and so he's really binding up their wounds and healing them and disinfecting. And he rescues them and takes them out, brings them to Mount Sinai, and says, "Okay, I just love you like that. And now here's how I want you to respond to that. I want you to love me above all else." I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. So they've already been deeply loved by God. He's rescued them from that. They're laying dead on the side of the road, and God took them in. He showed them mercy. And God's commands are always a reflection of his character. God's commands are always a reflection of his character. Before he commands something, he does it to us. God always keeps his own commands. And so if this command is a reflection of God's character, anytime you come to a command and you're like, boy, that sounds hard. How am I going to do that? Think, this is a reflection of God's character. Therefore, this is what he's like toward me. Uh, this is what he was like toward the people of Israel before he said, love your neighbor as yourself. He loved them deeply. And so we can put ourselves in this story. Imagine, uh, you know, spiritually, you're the one on the side of the road. Jesus called Satan, the devil, a thief who only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so we're the one on the side of the road, beaten, robbed, left, left for dead by Satan, who's come into our life to steal and kill and destroy. And what Jesus did is he saw you, had compassion on you, and he left his throne in heaven to come to earth to move toward us in our need. And then he picks us up, and he binds our wounds, and he heals us up, and he leaves the palace so he can bring us back to the palace, brings us back, and he pays it all out of his own pocket that we are uh, brought in um, from being left dead on the road. He takes care of us himself. And what's even more radical is not just that Jesus leaves the palace and brings us back to it, but actually he takes our place. Is that he leaves the palace and takes our place as someone who's been beaten up and uh, stripped and robbed by Satan and by the evil of this world. He, he says, I'm taking your place. You're going back to the palace. Maybe he carries us back and then he goes back out. But he actually takes our place on the cross is what's happening is that this is what you've done to yourself. This is what the world's done to you. And I'm going to come take your place so you can be freed from it. 
And so what grows love without limits in us? And it's not going to happen by determination or by willpower. There's this person that's hard to love. I just need to kind of, you know, muster up the strength and the willpower to just try really hard at loving them, even though I don't want to at all. Um, but what the Bible says is we're supposed to love people from the heart. That it's not just I kind of manage my unloving reactions and behavior, and I, it's inside, I feel all this lack of love for them, but on the outside I'm going to put on a good face. No, we're actually told to be transformed from the inside out, that actually what we're showing on the outside is what's true on the inside, that we're not hypocrites, that, oh, I was loving that person to their face, but then when I got back to talk to my friend, I was like, oh boy, let me tell you what so-and-so did, and we're complaining about them and not loving them, and we're supposed to have uh, love that comes from the heart. And being loved without limits, let me say again, being loved without limits grows love without limits. Love grows love. And so when we experience God loving us without limits, that grows in us love without limits towards God and towards other people. And it's really simple gardening. If you need cucumber seeds to grow cucumbers, right? So first thing I could think of, if you hate cucumbers, just they're kind of boring, but that's okay. Uh, You need cucumber seeds to grow cucumbers. So you need love seeds in order to grow the fruit of love in your life. And we can't just be like, I'm just going to grow love if we don't have love being put in. Uh, The seed of love grows the fruit of love. We become more loving by being more loved by God. And so the only, another image, the only way you can pour water out of a cup is if water is first poured into the cup. And so we receive love poured into us from God and then now we're able to pour that love out. So we'll only give this kind of love if we first receive this kind of love. Loved people love people. That's really, if you want to summarize uh, how transformation works according to the Bible, it's loved people love people. And so we need to be loved to receive God's love. And we respond with love to God and love to other people. Loved people love people. Love for God and love for others is the response of our heart to being loved by the God who is love. That we need Him when He enters into us, that comes out. And it's not just about knowing love as a fact. The lawyer, the priest, the Levite in this situation, they knew the law. They knew what God said. They knew what, how God loved the people of the past. He, they could even say, God loves us, we're His people. Uh, they know the commands. And yet, this, did not, this knowledge didn't change who they were, how they were acting towards other people. Uh, because they knew a lot about God, even maybe a lot about God's love, but they didn't know the God who is love, that there's a disconnect there. They had all this knowledge. And so you going home and being like, the Bible says God loves me, is maybe a step towards transformation, but it definitely isn't going to take you all the way. And so I encourage you to do this. If loved people love people, and we have someone in our life who's hard to love, uh, there's, I would encourage you to just, you know, on your own, maybe write down Here's all the reasons they're hard to love. Just get it all out. You know, you know they're a jerk. Uh, they never say thank you. Uh, they've hurt me too much. Why should I love them? Just get it all out. Write it all down. And maybe even say, like, I'm supposed to love them, and it's hard. And maybe say, well, if only they made it a little easier. If only they showed a little gratitude every once in a while. If only they did X, Y, and Z. And we get all those things out. And the next thing you do is you reflect on, how have I done these same things with God? How have I done these same things with Jesus? I inevitably can always usually find it. You know, you know, if Hudson's having difficulty with his behavior, not listening, it's like, huh, 
how long does it take God to get something through to me before I start doing it, right? And it's like, okay, I can have a little more patience and gentleness and compassion now. Because it's like, you know, and people, you know, somebody, if we're like, I do so much for them, and they never say thank you. Oh, I, God does a lot for me, way, you know, way more than, an infinite amount more than I even realize. And how often do I just go through day after day, week after week, sometimes year after year, without even saying thank you for those things. And so we look at what does this person do that makes them hard to love? And then we look at, uh, well, how have I done this to God? What makes me hard to love? Why am I undeserving of God's love? And then in that moment, we don't just say, you know, like, God, I'm so sorry, I'm going to do better. No, we, we receive it. We receive his love without limits for us. That he isn't limited to when I've behaved, uh, when I've said thank you, uh, when I've done everything right, when I've, you know, got my stuff together. But God has not limited his love towards us. And we won't reflect love without limits until we've received love without limits from God. And the best people at loving without limits are those who know how desperately they need love without limits. And that's how we are changed. And so if you're finding that your love for God and others has grown cold, warm your heart by the fire of God's love for you that I just don't feel anything for this person. Well, it's not, come on, heart, get get warm. It's like, go to the fire of God's love for you. Let that warm your heart and uh, kind of melt it and so it's not cold and hard towards them. I just want to end with one image about us as a community. I have these two little jars here. Maybe you've been nervous this whole time, wondering if I'm going to bump it over and break them all. Uh, but hopefully that won't happen. Those are my, those are my marbles from when I was a kid. Uh, but you notice there's a difference between these two jars. That this jar seems very hard. Sorry, I won't do that again. Very hard, and it's kind of cold. These little marbles, they're, they're together. But not really. They're not like, right? They're not, they're hard edges. They're not really uh, together. It's going to do it one more time, Ambie. There we go. But these, these won't make a noise. These little guys, they're like these little fuzz. They're called pom-poms. I have no idea why. But they can actually stick to each other. They can like, almost like get, I don't know what you call it. Not inside each other. But you know, they're like stuck to each other. And you put them in here, and they're way more connected to each other than these marbles are to each other. These are hard edges. They're not uh, connected to each other. And for us as a church, we are to be an as-Christ community. As Christ has loved us, as Christ has shown patience to us, as Christ has been gentle to us, as Christ has welcomed us and received us and accepted us as we are, so too then we do that to one another. And it's possible to be together and yet not be very connected, to have these hard edges cold toward one another, maybe putting on a face of love towards each other. But there's a big difference when it's like this. And the big difference is, you know, the way you measure the health of Christian community is this. Have we learned to be needy around each other? Have we learned to be needy around each other? This man in the story, he had these needs, and it could be seen, and the guy moved towards them. And as long as we're not allowing ourselves to be seen as this person on the side of the road who has these issues, you know, maybe it's not that extreme, but as long as we're holding back our needs from one another, uh, we don't have this, we're going to be like this. We're going to have these hearts that are closed. We're not opening ourselves up so that we can actually move towards each other and be connected in this soft way instead of in this hard way. And that's the type of community the world is longing for, that the world is looking for. And where they can be real and be loved and 
we all desire, a deep human desire is to be fully known and fully loved. And to the degree that you allow yourself to be fully known is the degree to which you'll be able to be fully loved. Because otherwise, you know, I've given you 80% of me. Well, that means 80% of me can be loved, but that last 20% uh, isn't being loved. I'm not fully known, so I'm not fully loved because part is you know, hidden away. And I heard a, a guy recently talk about how we often, uh, we share 90% with people. 90% of how we're feeling, 90% of how bad it is. And to ask each other, what's the other 10%? Or asking, you know, what's that 10% you're leaving behind, unsaid? The part that's probably the most difficult, that's the most painful, the most gut-wrenching part that might even bring us to tears and that last 10% that we tend to keep to ourselves because we don't really want us to be seen as that needy or that broken or that messed up. But God calls us to be a community who is loved by him and then who are loving one another as he's loved us and are loving those in our lives that way as well.